Hey, uh, good morning, guys. My name is Chad Kinser, and I serve as one of our pastors in our downtown congregation. I serve as teaching pastor there, uh, which occasionally allows me the chance to visit some other congregations and to open God's word with you. So that's why I'm here today. David uh, is out at another one of our congregations, and it's a privilege to open scripture with you. And thank you again, Kristen, for that, that reading. If you've got a Bible open to uh, 1 Corinthians 7, the passage that she read, verses uh, 25 to 40, will be there. In just a second, continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, but one uh, matter of sort of family business before I jump into that. Um, next week, starting next week, we're going to have a series within our series of 1 Corinthians uh, on masculine virtue. Our elders across all of our congregations just felt really burdened heading into this year uh, to take up again real purposeful ministry and call toward the men of our church to step into masculine virtue. And so uh, many of you were part of the, the conference we had a couple of weekends ago uh, on that, and, and it was an amazing moment for men across the city, 700 men singing and sitting under the preaching of God's word, uh, edified and exhorted to be men of God. Um, and we're going to sort of come off the, the end of that with a three-week series um, on that same topic, at the, book of first, at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, Paul takes up a call to men. So it'll be a series, again, within this series. If you're interested in looking back at that conference, or maybe you didn't get to attend and you want resources there, we've got a link to our website, masculinevirtue.net, masculinevirtue.net, and all of the teachings and resources and liturgies that we did are on that website. And so for both men and women, if you're interested to pray toward that series, sisters, Please pray toward the series starting next Sunday. But also, brothers, if you're interested to take up some of those resources, we encourage you to go uh, to that website. But that starts next week, so look forward to that. We've got a lengthy and, uh, and helpful passage in front of us today, so let's get to it. If you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us. God, we want to take a moment to just acknowledge and say thank you that the way you've ordered your church is not that we would gather every week to share our own ideas and thoughts, but that the way you've ordered your church is that we would gather every week to have your very voice open to us in Holy Scripture. God, I pray that what we do today would be about just that, that we would have an encounter with you, the living and true God, because of your word opened to us. And so for every purpose which you sent this word, you promise us in scripture that at no point will your, your word return empty, but it will always accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So I pray every purpose for which you sent this scripture today would be accomplished. We'd be formed as the people of Jesus, under the lordship of Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, and to be at rest under Jesus. And I pray for any here today who are outside of faith in Jesus, that they would hear today an invitation wide and open, come to the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you came, as one was prayed earlier this morning, you came for those who are far off, and you don't pretend uh, anything about that. That's why you came for those who are far off. And so we offer this prayer in hope and expectation as we unfold your word, and we ask for help. And we all prayed in Jesus' name and said, amen. 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 Hey, one of the things that I love about preaching through a book of the Bible, as was our steady diet in our church, if you've been around any length of time, you know, we sort of systematically work through books of the Bible. One of the things I love about that is we get to encounter the voice of God, the word of God, in its own cadence, 
in its own progression. And what I mean by that is we let God say what he wants to say, and we let him say what he wants to say in the order that he wants to say it in. We have pet topics that we want to take up all the time, don't we? But when we go through a book of the Bible, we put our pet topics aside, and we just let God choose the topic for us. And 1 Corinthians is a perfect example of that. Some have said that the letter of 1 Corinthians feels like an open letter Q&A between Paul and the church at Corinth. And so just to give an example of that, this, just our work to this point in chapter 7, we've taken up issues of church division, spiritual entitlement, issues of church discipline over gross sexual immorality. We've taken up the chipper topic of lawsuits in the church, a biblical vision for our bodies and sexuality. We've taken up sexual intimacy and the design for that in marriage. We've taken up divorce and remarriage, and last week, the issue of Christian contentment, regardless of your circumstances. Just a walk in the park, light topics through seven chapters. And today, we add to that the issue and the question of singleness, the issue of singleness. And so there were some in the church of Corinth who were wondering whether or not they should get married. And there were others in the church who didn't want to get married. And there was a third party minority in the church who had lost a spouse, they were widows, and they were wondering, is it okay, is it permissible for me to consider remarriage? And so these are important questions to consider along the journey of discipleship to Jesus. We want to follow our Lord Jesus, but we also want to know how does he intersect, how does he engage me in the real practical, functional, everyday questions of my life, relationships that I have. These are important questions. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard bad or unhelpful teaching on singleness and dating. Singleness is an important conversation for us to take up because of the moment we live in. For some, singleness is to be desired over marriage because marriage is increasingly viewed as a failed institution in our cultural moment. We've seen so many bad marriages and failed marriages. Is it really worth our time? Is it really worth our energy? It's being redefined all the time to mean different things, is it, is it worth giving my life to? Some want no part because of failed marriages. Others don't want any part of marriages because they would just rather enjoy their freedom, enjoy their autonomy, and keep their options open. And for others, singleness is something to only be tolerated. It's something that maybe is viewed as a problem to move beyond or move out of, out of a fear of lifelong loneliness or maybe out of a positive desire for romantic fulfillment. And maybe even some have been made to feel by family or those in the church that any sort of prolonged singleness beyond an age that's undefined but all of us have in our head, if you're still single beyond that age, well then maybe you've done something wrong. Maybe you're not putting yourself out there in the right ways and you're living a second-rate life. And then others who know that when singleness is unwanted and prolonged, it can lead to heartache and confusion and despair. Why would God keep a good gift of relationship from me? So the question becomes, like, how do we as Christians think about singleness? How, how, do we, how do we think about that? How do we think about the desire to be married? Hey, that's what's happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here's what I want you to know. I realize I'm saying that into a community and into a congregation that's primarily made up of those married and with families, but where this passage brings all of us together, this passage, where it falls in the flow of the book and where it's connected to the broader conversation about sex and marriage, Paul clearly intended for this passage on singleness to be heard and applied 
by everyone in the church, regardless of your station. So just as much as the above section on marriage was meant to be heard by married couples, it was also meant to be heard by those who are single and understood and applied by them. And so he also intends for this section to be heard and understood by those who are married, a passage on singleness, so they could advocate for their single brothers and sisters and so be a family of God, you see it. And so we'll jump into it, and I've gotta admit, I'm gonna give you sort of the structure and the map of how we're gonna navigate this passage today, but I've gotta admit that the two, the, the titles I've given for the two points of my sermon are the least compelling, lamest titles that you could give for the two points of your sermon, but they're what I've got, and they're gonna help you understand what we'll do as we unpack it. So the first move today is to give a biblical framework and burden regarding singleness, and the second is instruction to those who are single. Again, hardly compelling, but super clear. We're gonna do that, right? We're gonna do it. So we'll jump into the first, a framework and a burden. As we jump into the passage, Paul's gonna talk about singleness in a way that's gonna be hard to find, if found at all, in any of the popular level books or teaching on dating and singleness. Let's put it this way. Paul probably wouldn't be invited to singles conferences. <laughs> he probably wouldn't get published by Crossway, right? But this is Holy Scripture to us. He's gonna give us a framework for all of this that he's going to certainly apply to singleness, but lean in with me. It's a, it's a framework that applies to singleness, but it's big enough to hold all of us. And he means it that way. So jump in with me in verse 25. We'll handle the first six verses sort of piece by piece and then move quickly from there. He says in 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one, uh, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So from the top, Paul says a couple of interesting things here. He addresses this group called the betrothed. And there's some debate on exactly who is captured in this word, but it's not in those engaged like you just might think. It's a word that's translated from Greek that really holds and covers anyone who is unmarried or single, right? So he's talking largely to that crowd, and it's a different category than the widows who are mentioned later in the passage. He's talking to primarily single people, those unmarried. And he says here something really interesting. I don't have a command about this. And so some kind of write Paul off when they hear him say this. So it's like, well, this isn't is authoritative. This is just sort of advice. Then why are we listening to you here? And what Paul means by saying, I don't have a command, is to say, hey, I don't have any previous teaching from the Lord Jesus on this topic. Like, he didn't take up this topic in particular. So what I'm gonna do is broadly apply what we have specifically received from Jesus to this issue. And so I'm gonna give you some thoughtful advice, but after all, it's apostolic advice. <laughs> and even more than that, here's where you and I should really pay attention to it. Even though Paul felt like when he wrote this that it was advice he was giving, God saw fit to order it by the, superintention of the, Holy, the, the superintending work of the Holy Spirit to then capture it in Holy Scripture. So what he thought was advice, God saw fit by the Spirit to say, it's actually authoritative word for the church. And so in verse 26, he gives us a window into the particular setting he's writing to with this group of single people. He says in 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it's actually good that a person remain as they are. And so Paul's writing to a specific moment, first century Corinth, and apparently something was going on of a present distress. 
There was something of unrest, there's maybe even suffering. We're not sure exactly what it is. Scholars like to guess about what he might be referring to. But here's the point. Something was happening in Corinth that was burdensome enough that it caused Paul to draw a pause from just endorsing people to run off and getting married. He's actually saying there's something going on and it might actually be better if you don't pursue that kind of covenant relationship and you stay as you are. And so again, Paul's speaking in this historical context. It's worth mentioning because it's plain there in the passage, but it's not the driving factor. I mention it because what's happening with Paul referring to the present distress, while it's not the driving factor, it's the thing that triggers him to the driving factor that he wants to now give not only them, but to all the churches and to you and me. And the thing that he wants to give to us is the eager expectation of our future hope in the return of Jesus, which he's gonna talk about in the following verses. But his resolve, because of this present distress, because of the stuff that's happening in the midst that they were going through, it might not be best that you run off into marriage. Because of that, he goes back to the rule he gave us last week in the passage we looked at, the rule of life. It might be best for some of you to remain as you are. As a disciple of the Lord Jesus, don't seek to change your circumstances, but be faithful right as your circumstances are. And so he teases that out in verse 27. Pick up again. He says, if you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, then don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry, I want you to know that you will have troubles. And I would spare you of that. So this is really clear from a plain reading. If you're married, stay that way. If you're single, I'd encourage you not to see that as a problem to be solved, but remain as you are. And if you get married, that's fine and good, but don't think of your marriage as the thing that will solve your problems. And all the married people in the room said, amen. Amen. So the way Paul talks about this is a bit shocking, isn't it? Because we, have an, we live in a moment, especially in this particular context of Edmund, where marriage and family is sort of an ideal pursuit. But it's as if he prefers singleness and talks casual about marriage. This would have been shocking then. It's certainly shocking to us. And it's shocking coming from a Jewish man. In a Jewish context in the ancient world, if you were an adult without a spouse or a child, you culturally had little to no value, dignity, or worth. That was sort of your status symbol of living a dignified and important life. And so Paul realizes that he's actually saying something that's totally shocking, both then and now, so much so that in verse 29, he's going to say, let me explain what I mean. Pick up with me in 29. Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And let those who are mourning as though they were not. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as if they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Because this present form of the world is passing away. Okay, everybody lean in with me. Because this whole section, inside of this teaching on singleness, that's so often bypassed, what we just read, it's so often missed, it's so often bypassed in our own thinking and certainly any popular level teaching on this topic. 
But what's happening in these verses is Paul is pulling back the curtain, and it's as if he's saying, I know we're talking about singleness. I know you have questions about it, but I've got, you've got to see this. You've got to understand this. The appointed time is short. And he's referring to the days in which we live that the significant event of redemptive history has already happened in the death of Jesus for sin, his resurrection from the dead to prove that sins have really been paid for. That's the significant redemptive event in history by which now God is setting the last days. And it's the eager expectation and hope of every Christian since the resurrection of Jesus that he'll probably come back tomorrow. Because the appointed time is short. We're living in days that it's not gonna be this way forever. The appointed time is short. I realize now we're sitting here 2,000 years later, but it's literally been the eager expectation of every Christian since the resurrection of Jesus that a Sunday sermon might not get finished. That the church might just split wide open and, and there it is, right? And so Paul's saying, here's what you've gotta see. I know we're talking about this topic, but the appointed time has now it's short, and the present form of the world as it is, it's passing away. And what's crazy is I know I'm saying that into a room even this morning where you would go, yeah, I believe in the return of Jesus. Like, I, I know that that's happening, but here's what I want to point out. Rarely do we take the return of Jesus so serious that we actually apply it to our lives and the decisions that we make and the relationships that we take up. We normally just sort of make decisions because that's about now and have relationships because that's about now and oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. He's saying, I want you to see that the other way around. He's talking about a kind of urgency to your obedience to Jesus, a way of stewarding your life and the way you make decisions that fully expects Jesus to come back at any moment. At any moment. And I believe that what Paul is saying here is actually the interpretive grid, the burden, the urgency he's sharing here is actually the interpretive grid for which he now is talking about everything in chapter seven. The way he talked about sex within marriage, divorce and remarriage, and now talking about singleness and considering marriage. And so let me state the edge of the burden this way. We've got to see that the life, capital L life, the kind of vitality and fulfillment that all of us are reaching for and we so badly want to take hold of, the fulfillment that we're seeking doesn't primarily come through a change in circumstances or through a change in relationship, but the life that we so badly want is actually going to come through the breaking of the eastern skies at the trumpet of the archangel. That's fulfillment. We so much think of that fulfillment's gonna come through a different situation or different circumstance. Paul's saying, don't believe that lie. The fulfillment and capital L life that you so badly want will only happen at the sound of the trumpet of the archangel. And so outside of the return of Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God in its fullness, all of our attempts to find ultimate fulfillment in our circumstances will be what the writer of Ecclesiastes calls chasing smoke. Chasing fulfillment in your circumstances will feel like, I've got it. I'm happy right now. Only a week later, I'm not happy anymore. To chase fulfillment in your circumstances will be like chasing smoke. So when Paul says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn, 
as though they weren't. And as those who rejoicing, as though they weren't. When Paul says this, he's not speaking literally as though mourning or rejoicing are bad. They're not, they're, they're part of life. They're your... He's also not saying, <laughs> if you have a wife, live as though you had none. He's not speaking literally as though to leave. He just told you to stay with your wife if you have a wife or your husband if you have one. So he's not speaking literally. He's now on a digression of speaking metaphorically or rhetorically. Here's the point he's making. The point is not to live a withdrawn life. Well, Jesus is coming back, so my marriage doesn't matter, my feelings don't matter, my possessions don't matter. He's not suggesting we should just collect canned goods and go live in a field somewhere and just prepare for the last day. No, here, here's what he, he's saying this. I want you to live your life right now. I want you to live your life right now. I want you to do it, not disengaged. The return of Jesus doesn't disengage you from the world. It actually engages you in the world right where you are, but not just to be in the world, to have the world in the world right now engaged, but so primarily marked by an eternity with Jesus that you're now free from being pulled in a thousand different directions by the things the world tells you that you have to have if you're gonna be satisfied. Live right now in the world so primarily marked by the expectation of the return of Jesus that you're free from the world's lies on a satisfied life. Isn't it true, guys? Every vision of a satisfied life that the world throws at you overpromises and underdelivers. Isn't it true? Your Instagram feed proves it. Three pictures of people you follow, followed by three ads that tell you everything you need to live fulfilled. It's not just your Instagram feed. The list of your regrets proves that the world overpromises and underdelivers. Maybe more acutely, your debt ledger proves the world overpromises and underdelivers. We have spent thousands of dollars to achieve a satisfied life only to be still discontent. And what you're left with is regrets and bills to pay, right? That's what Paul's driving at. So then you take this framework and you apply it back to singleness. The idea is that you would see your singleness and you would see the prospect of marriage in light of eternity with Jesus, not, though, as something to be pursued for ultimate happiness. See your singleness and the prospect of marriage in light of eternity with Jesus, not as something to be primarily pursued for your happiness. Now, now here's the deal. Paul's not in any way putting marriage down. This is the same guy who gave us Ephesians chapter five, which is the most beautiful passage in all of the Bible, downloading the significance of marriage. Paul blesses and affirms marriage. What this is about is seeing both your singleness and your marriage in light of the coming kingdom of Jesus so that being satisfied is not understood, to repeat myself again, being satisfied is not to be understood in a change of circumstances, but to be understood in the middle of your circumstances, present with Jesus, to be changed by him right where you stand. That is fulfillment and satisfaction. That Jesus would meet you not in a changed circumstance, but in your present circumstances. Maybe to put it bluntly, if you're a Christian and you're single, 
which means you have Jesus. But what you're really shooting for in life is to find the one and get married. If you're a Christian and you're single, but what you're really after is getting married, then here's what will happen. You will end up a married Christian, but unsatisfied both in your marriage and in Jesus. Does that make sense? So, <laughs> but that's the way it is with anything. If you have Jesus, but you're really shooting for something else, in the end, you'll miss that thing and Jesus. If Jesus is just riding shotgun with you, you'll miss your destination and Jesus at the same time. But if Jesus is driving the thing, then you'll not only get Jesus, but anything he chooses to give you, you'll have Jesus and he's enough, and you'll get the other thing, and you'll see that in light of Jesus, which is the way to have the thing. That's the point. I told you Paul doesn't talk like any popular level dating experts. He doesn't do it. But I want you to notice why he talks this way. He gives us... In verse 32, he says, I'm talking this way, seeing your singleness in light of the coming return of Jesus. In 32, because I want you to be free from anxieties. And it's not as though Paul is under any notion that he can actually free someone entirely from anxiety. He's saying, I just want you to be anxious about the right things. How much, how much time do you spend being anxious about whether or not you'll stay single forever? I want you to be anxious about the right things. And then in 35, in case we're listening to Paul like a dad who's giving a lecture that we don't really want to hear and we're just kind of yawning at it, he goes ahead and says in 35, guys, I'm saying this for your benefit. I don't want to lay any restraint on you. I'm not trying to hold you back. I'm not trying to kill your joy. I'm trying to promote your joy. I'm trying to promote good order, and I'm trying to secure for you undivided devotion to Jesus. He's speaking like a good dad who would help us see life as it really is. So in the short time we have left, I want to end with Paul's instruction to singles. There's three things. Two of them are intensely practical and one is aimed at the heart. So we'll deal with the two and we'll get to the one. And so here's the first one. Marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. Can I get an amen? It's true. Paul does something so special for the church in this passage. He dignifies both marriage and single people to the same degree. One is not seen higher or more elevated than the other, and one is not devalued. Back up in verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. He was single. But he says, but each one of you has his own gift from God. He's talking about marriage and singleness. Each of you have his own gift. Both are a gift. One is just like this, and the other is like that. One is of one kind, one is of the other. So here's what I want you to hear. Don't mistake whatever gift you have as God. Whatever gift you have is a gift, but it's not God. Marriage is a good gift, but it's a bad God. Marriage is a good gift, but it's a bad God. What do you mean? Marriage won't last forever. Marriage won't last forever, but attachment to Jesus will last forever. You even say it in your vows. You recognize the time that you part. It's at death that we part right? Marriage won't last for, it's a good gift, but it's a bad God. On the other side, singleness is a good gift, but it's not an identity. It's not an identity as though you are single, as though that's all there is about you. Singleness is a good gift, but it's not an identity that can only be received from Jesus, right? 
And so at the end of the passage, Paul blesses those after you see marriage, the way Paul sees it, in light of the coming of Jesus, if you still want to get married, he says, I bless that, both to widows and those who are single. But in 39, he gives us a caveat. You can get married, but only in the Lord. Meaning, Christians, marry Christians. And if you're dating, date a Christian. Well, that really like narrows down my options. You're right. Narrows your options. If you're dating, only date Christians. What about that missionary situation where I'm like the best evangelist of all time and he or she is the hottest thing you've ever seen? (laughs) Only date Christians. You tend to marry the person you date. Magical statement that unlocked the world for you, I know. (laughs) But Paul's saying, hey, Continue on in this, but only in the Lord. Why is he saying that? I want to free you from anxieties, and I'm doing this to promote good order and undivided devotion to. Um, this is for your good, right? The second thing Paul says is honor God with your body. Do things meant for covenant inside of covenant, not outside. In verse 36, he gives a really strong word. We'll read it. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if he has passions that are strong, we all know what he's talking about now. (laughs) And it has to be, then let him do as he wishes and let them marry, it's not a sin. I wanna be as honest and clear as this passage is. Earlier in this chapter, Paul says, it's better to marry than burn with passion. So listen, if you're dating or seriously dating, and you're having trouble honoring boundaries with your body towards sexual purity, the command of this passage is repent. Repent of your sin and bring in Christian community to help you with your struggle against lust. No one's mad at you for your desires. No one's mad at you for your temptations or impulses. The Bible's not. But it is saying is the problem isn't so much to have your impulses and desires and your attractions, but the problem is when you take those into your own prerogative and to do with them what you so choose. Repent. And bring in community to help you with your struggle against lust. Here's my, here's, I think, the aim of what Paul would say, and here's certainly my pastoral aim for you in, in agreement with the elders of this church. If you're dating, seek to treat your boyfriend or your girlfriend in the kind of way where you could look their future spouse in the eye and shake their hand with honor. Seek to be toward the one that you're dating in a kind of way that you have a clear conscience before God that that other person is an image bearer of the Most High and their body is not yours and your impulses aren't yours either. They are yours, but they're submitted to God. Have a kind of relationship where you have a clear conscience before God and that person and you leave them better off than when you found them. That's what this passage suggests. If you're engaged to be married and you're like me when I was there 16 years ago, if you're engaged to be married, and like so many in that place, you find it difficult to keep your hands off of your fiance, your struggle is understandable, but your sins are still serious. Your struggle's understandable, but your sins are still serious. The same thing to those who are dating. Repent and bring in Christian community 
Jesus is faithful to forgive and to form you. If there's anyone who knows, you know, like it's so hard though, it's so hard. If there's anyone who knows how hard it is to wait to the wedding day, it's Jesus. He won his bride 2,000 years ago and he's still waiting to be with her like he will be on the great day. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus knows what it's like to wait to the great day. As a man of honor, he's standing there with character for his bride. Maybe to get personal here for a second. There are so many things that 16 years ago I wish I could do differently. Now that I'm on this side of my marriage, I think that every other married person in the room would agree. Hey, listen, there's not a single boundary that I crossed with my wife before we got married that gained me anything. Not a single boundary. I, we, we don't have more delight in our marriage because of boundaries we crossed. We didn't cultivate intimacy in our marriage because of boundaries we crossed. What we cultivated was shame. That's what we cultivated. The, the only thing that I'm left with from those moments of boundaries crossed before the covenant I say, well, yeah, it's just a formality. It's an important formality. Jesus doesn't move in on you and play covenant before the covenant. He moves in with covenant and all that comes with it. The only regret I have is knowing that Jesus wasn't honored. That's the regret I have. And so I think here there's practical wisdom. I think there's practical wisdom. If you're engaged, don't take out a long engagement period. A long engagement is like a crock pot of temptation. Just, you just, let's just see how long we can let this simmer. That's good for roast beef, bad for your late relationship. I think there are some cases where there might be wisdom in moving up the wedding date. Yeah, but we've already booked the thing and did the deal and break, break it. I think it's better to form a pattern of obeying Jesus than keeping up appearances and continuing in sin. And you're like, well, that sounds radical. Your sin's pretty radical rebellion against God and making hard decisions to obey Jesus is not, this isn't the last time you'll have to do that. You may set a pattern of obeying Jesus in the hard things. And listen, I sinned too. <laughs> I'm saying this not as a perfect one, but as one who crossed boundaries I shouldn't have. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know if that's our situation. Hey, there are pastors in this church that will go to the mat with you on processing this and figuring out what does it look like to create a context of healthy honoring of Jesus and honoring of the relationship he's given to you as a gift. So let's process with us. Hey, here's the last thing today, the last instruction. Devotion to Jesus isn't a consolation prize. Devotion to Jesus isn't a consolation prize. For some of you, when you hear this passage, that there's this unique opportunity for singleness to have undivided devotion to Jesus and that singleness is a gift, you hear that and you think, well, singleness is a gift I would like to return Can I have a different gift, please, God? <laughs> but please hear me. It's right and good for you to process your desires with God, 
But devotion to Jesus is not a consolation prize. As though this is the least that God could offer you. If you're not married, you get me. As, this, as if it's a leftover offering. Listen, undivided devotion to Jesus is the prize, the capital P prize for every person, whether you're married or single, and it's where every Christian is headed. <laughs> like if undivided devotion to Jesus isn't compelling to you, what you need is to submit your heart to Jesus because if heaven is what you say, is, is where you say your destination will be, like that's where you're going. So there's an opportunity in the meantime to get busy with eternity. And every single, every single person who is faithful to Jesus, I want you to hear this, all of you who are single, or the 10 of you in this church, I'm not sure how many there are. Every single person who is faithful to Jesus, please hear this, you have a prophetic ministry to this church and to the watching world because you get to offer something through the manner of your life of saying Jesus is enough, and Jesus is better. And the reason that's a prophetic offering to this church and the world is because that is the same confession that every one of us will shout with our whole being for the rest of eternity, but through you right now, we get a sneak preview. Amen. We get a sneak preview. All of us will be saying that. That's where all of us are headed. And so you're significant, and your devotion to Jesus isn't a consolation prize. It's teaching all of us something about how we ought to be devoted to Jesus. Jesus, in his ministry, he told two stories. In these two stories, there is different imagery, but both of them have the same point. He told one story about a man who found this magnificent plot of land. Magnificent plot of land. And he told another story about a man who found this priceless pearl. And in both stories, the men, upon finding this thing, the land and the pearl, they sold everything they had. <laughs> they let go of their former life and they forsook it all in order to take hold of that pearl and that land. And as much as both of those stories sound like the American vision for marriage and living your best life, those stories aren't about either of those things. Those stories are about the kingdom of God and loving devotion to Jesus. Jesus is the field. Jesus is the pearl, the one worth leaving everything for, forsaking everything for, selling all that you have to have that. He's the only one who can hold you, keep you, sustain you, name you, make sense of you and where you're headed. He's the only one. Everything else is worth leaving to have him. And so marriage will one day fade away, but devotion to Jesus will last forever. Singleness will one day fade away, but devotion to Jesus will last forever. And so your singleness is a gift to you from God, and it's for his glory, and it's about devotion to Jesus. Your marriage, if you're married, is a gift to you from God. And it's for his glory. And it's about devotion to Jesus. Our time is short. The return is imminent. The pressing world, this present world is passing away. But devotion to Jesus will last forever. Let's pray together.
Our Father, I ask that you would hold our attention. I ask that you would, anything that, anything that happened this morning and as your word was unfolded that provoked or sparked something in us, I pray that you would hold our attention to that thing and it wouldn't be lost by the time we get back to our cars. Would you spike us to attention around the thing that lasts and that's devotion to Jesus? And Jesus, together we want to confess and tell you, thank you for being worth it. And you are worth it. And on the great day, there will be no question as to how much you really are worth it. So we offer this prayer in Jesus' name.